Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Other sites have gone back to the same old tactic of showing you a lower price and then charging huge fees at checkout. But at SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. You'll know exactly how much you're paying, where you're sitting, and whether or not you're getting a good deal all right from your phone. So drop your old site and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello! And welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and with me in the studio, first of his name, it's Andy Greenwald! We're back, baby! Feels good to be here! Man, we got you, we got some guests, we'll get to them. We got Jason Concepcion, Mallory Rubin, and Richard Linklater. Yeah, not all at once. Not all at once, not all in the studio, but we got you. We got a special Richard Linklater interview coming at the end of The Watch. Go check out his movie, Everybody Wants Some. It is delightful. Hmm. Really rekindled my interest in baseball. Are they showing that on airplanes yet or no? (laughs) Talk to me next year. Okay. What's up, man? This is a big time, Chris. Look at us. We're sitting in different seats. I know. We're in the same room. Uh, Uh, This is relevant information. Um, What we want to do today is talk a little bit about Game of Thrones Season 6. What else? I don't know anything else to talk about. Did Dilma get... Like, impeached? What happened? I'm off the news. We're going to talk about the different voting potential of the upper house in Brazil versus the lower house, who impeached, as we all know, impeached President Dilma just the other night. But before we get to that, <laughs> we're going to talk about... By the way, you, Chris legit texted me and said, we're going to talk about the Brazilian impeachment scandal. Dilma was, like, way more interesting than the NBA playoffs on Sunday. That's rough. Um, <laughs> Chris... We got to talk about. We're going to talk about Game of Thrones, but we got to talk a little bit about our show. We got to give people some more info about yeah. After the Thrones, which is weirdly our TV show. Yeah. Which I'm out here taping. We're getting excited about I, it. I'm taping it too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So it's okay. It's I thought you were the stand-in until Chris Hardwick got here. <laughs> no. Katie Nolan is in route. You know. Look, we're so excited about this. We're having a great time. But the, I think it's good for our motivation that we feel like the executive producers like have eight digits of Hardwick and Katie Nolan's number dialed on their cell phones at all times, and they just have their thumb over the button, just in case. Uh, Yeah, so this, we should, just some more details, just to sort of sketch it out, right? Yeah, we're, basically, this is going to be a visual version of, if you like the Watch the Thrones podcast, we're trying to capture the same vibe, explanation, uh, with a little bit of fun, doing a little context around certain things that you're going to be seeing on the season. Like I said last time, I'm hoping for some prop humor, yeah. although I can't guarantee that yet. Um, we may have some guests, we may have some special friends joining us. Here's the relevant Hardwick, info. Hardwick, Nolan. Hardwick, Nolan, on call. They're literally outside the door right now. Yeah, we're going to have he, some guests. He, here's the relevant info, because people are a little bit confused about this, okay? So the show is premiering April 25th. It's Monday. It's the day after Game of Thrones season six premiere. Yes. It is premiering on HBO Now. It is premiering on HBO Go. It you is... can only really premiere in one place, but go ahead. Why are you? Do you feel the rhythm I had building up? <laughs> this is why I can only work with I'm Katie. Because I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. You should sign up for our newsletter at TheRinger.com where you can see some of my editing handiwork. And if you do, you'd know I would tell you, you can only premiere in one place. Am I right, Mal? You're right, Christopher. Thank Did you. you just? But here, I had this. I had this run going. I was feeling it. I have no idea what that feels like hey. to have a run going and have somebody interrupt me with wow. information. Are we? Work, are we? Is this? Is this? Is this friction happening? Is this? Kidding. Oh my I'm god! I'm just trying to say here. Look, I was trying to promote my show that you're helping me out with <laughs> after the. Th- <laughs> <laughs> Look. We're going to work this out. We're going to work this out before we get on camera. It's our show. Let's go. Come on. Okay. It's our show for now. April 25th. uh, HBO Now, right? Yeah. HBO Go. Yeah. HBO On Demand. Apparently. And it's going to be on HBO HBO. HBO Ocho. HBO IRL. Yeah. It is going to be on all those things. No, it's going to be on, uh, it's going to be on linear television. So if you have a Magnavox and you're, you're like, (laughs) you just paid for HBO in 86 to get a Tyson fight, we'll be there. But we're going to be there and uh, we're going to be, we're excited about it. We, it is not going to be a podcast. Right. Should no, we, but we will have a podcast presence of th- a Thrones podcast presence. Yeah. So don't do, do, do you won't miss us on and the air. The other thing that people have been asking us a lot is, will will people are, are from all over the world? People are like, will I be able to watch you 
in my country, yeah. in my home country. Like people who you know are watching the the Dilma scandal unfold in Brazil yeah. are Brazilian fans. Also, some dude in uh, in South Africa keeps tweeting, "Will I be able to watch you?" And then he goes, "Hashtag diplomatic community." <laughs> but guess what? <laughs> Classically, little up and two joke. Guess what though? <laughs> We are on in South Africa. Someone are you told sure? Us. No, you're making so many promises. Look, no, I, I can I can I do can we do more Lethal Weapon two here? <laughs> can we talk about the part where where the dude at the embassy goes, but 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 your blick, your blick, your blick. <laughs> can we can we just do that? Can we find a way to make that voice when Whatever we talk about? Whatever you need, Leo gets. <laughs> can we do that voice? But talk about Castle Blick. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like, South African Game of Thrones. South guys. African Lethal oh Weapon Two Game of Thrones. Like, we're do just... sell swords compete for Krugerrands? Yeah. <laughs> can people tell that yes. we've been talking to each other since seven a.m. Oh this morning? God. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's lock into a, a quick. We we wanted. We're obviously gonna have Mal and Jason. On. We're gonna talk about Game of Thrones. We're gonna, season we're six. Gonna, we're gonna preview really quickly before we do that. Let's just do quick in and out because I know you had some takes. Yeah, I got some takes. So in or out? New season of Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. Yeah, new season of uh, uh, of Kimmy Schmidt debuted on Friday on Netflix. I love the first season. I love the second season. I love a Tina Fey and Robert Carlock joke. It, there's so many jokes on this show, but here's my take on this. Do you want to take? Yeah. I love I love the show, but I I watch it and I I sort of can't believe that they're ma- they're allowed to make this show. We've talked a lot recently about bespoke television, how, you know, there's so many shows that are almost being tailored to very very specific tastes. Yeah. Almost tailored to the point of just I can't believe anyone other than me and maybe 20 other people like it the hardest laugh this show got for me in the first three or four episodes is when Ellie Kemper's character the titular Kimmy Schmidt is walking down a block in in Brooklyn where her character lives and there's like a um a big construction site yeah and along the wall of it as she walks it's revealed that it says coming soon nine new banks Okay, and I really laughed. I know Jason is chuckling about it, too, because we live in New York, and, like, that's a very New York joke. Yeah. Does that play? Do you know what I mean? Like, the the number one thing I thought of when watching this new season of the show... Oh, by the way, I'm in. But, sorry, I forgot about our conceit for a second. But I forgot about... I mean, it made me think of Horace and Pete, which is basically a vanity project that has moments of artistic yeah, yeah. triumph and also moments where I'm just like I, I, it's very clear no one was telling did him what Kimmy to do did Kimmy Schmidt also put Louis C.K. in millions of dollars of debt weirdly it did <laughs> he invested in that one too he's kind of screwed he's just throwing his money around no but it's like Netflix is just letting Tina Fey make this very very weird show yeah. with you know where some of the best jokes are about bank construction in gentrified Brooklyn or like John Hamm, a character John Hamm played uncredited last year and they're making that joke about they make a joke about that character inventing the the buy the world of coke commercial. I don't want to get too far away from this being a rapid fire segment. Yeah, is this because there's no ads, so they're not like playing to because the first season was made for NBC before yeah, the NBC decided they didn't want it. Information the kind of the relationship that these shows have with their audience is different than the way they used to be. Say if it's like on ABC or NBC show where they have to play to like a certain. It's- it's like, possible. And Procter it, & Gamble wants this to reach X people. It, it made me think of you know some of the comments we've been making about Better Call Saul recently, which is like maybe the thing that these geniuses of the last era of television have earned are these strange sort of tenure where they get removed from oh, the battlefield yeah. and they get to make the show that they want to make at their own pace to their chase their own muses and not really worry about the scrum. Yeah. You know, which is... Which is the end, that's the envy of everyone creatively. Like they, everyone would love to make a show note-free and you know just make jokes that they find funny or whatever. But it does lead to this strange feeling of a little bit of a vacuum, which is fine. I love the show, but it it's just I can't believe that this is a mass-produced thing for more people for people who don't live in rapidly gentrifying areas of Brooklyn. I am looking forward to checking it out. Uh, for I've my really sold it. In and out. Do I pitch my own In and Out? No, I'll ask you one. Thanks. Uh, w- w- there's a movie. Yeah. Uh, it's called, uh, uh, it's Matt Damon Green Zone. Right? That's right. No, that's, that would be an anti-plane movie because yeah. you would have been seeing an Iraq war movie six years later. Can't wait. No, you saw Green Room. Yeah. And you're hype. Uh, Green Room! Because I gotta give it the Sicario shout because it's the most intense film I've seen since Sicario. Uh, Jeremy Sollinger's, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. Second film, his first film was Blue Ruin. He likes uh, colors. 
at least in the titles, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is all about white supremacists, so Another n- color. not so much in this movie. Um, this movie stars Patrick Stewart as a the like sort of patriarch of a like white supremacist. My neighbor in gentrified Brooklyn. <laughs> not in this one. Uh, Anton Yelchin um, and Imogen Poots, who comes through with a crazy good performance. Poots! Uh, That's a good one. The double O works with her. There is about 35 minutes of setup in this movie, and then it grabs your throat. I thought and you were it going does not else. let you go for such a long time. I asked, uh, I told Ryan O'Hanlon, who we work with, to go yeah. see it. And four hours later, he just texted me back. I feel like you have made it your mission to expose me to the most violent art possible. <laughs> I saw him. He looked shook today. He, his eyes are red. He's not okay. Yeah, so uh, I, can't, I can't recommend this movie more highly if you have an appetite for extreme knife violence. So to be clear... I'm not going to see this movie, yeah. and nor should I. Yeah. So I'm out, but you're in. Yeah, the premise is that Anton Yelchin is in a band called the Ain't Rights, who are a hardcore punk band from, I think, Virginia. Are they better or worse than the Nasty Bits? <laughs> They're so much better. Okay. They tour to the West Coast. They're playing in Oregon, uh, and they wind up getting a show at a rural Oregon bar. It's already a mistake. And they think, like, okay, we'll go play. And they're warned that there are some skinheads there, but they're like, well, we'll just go through with it to get the money. And uh, everything goes wrong from there. Everything. That's great because I, I was expecting that they like walked in and like the Decemberists were playing. You well, this is, I mean? and the I'm thing that's like, cool about this Oregon. movie, and this is what Sonier does, uh, is that he basically puts in people in extreme situations, mm-hmm. uh, like Repo Men. You know, like Repo Men loves extreme situations. It's a Repo Men joke. Um, he just like is like, what if I? By made the way, a it went over movie? great in the room, everybody. <laughs> what if, what if I made a, Jason liked it. What if I made a horror movie about real situations? So it's just like the same thing with Blue Ruin, which is basically a vengeance movie, or this film, which is basically a panic room type haunted house almost movie. But he's like, what if we imbued that with like real, real realism? Did, did is it does it create a feeling that you could relate to from the moment when they shut the door on us in the studio this morning on the set of After the Thrones for the first time yeah. and the silence was like the grave? And I literally, for a moment, I was like, this must be what it feels like in the crypt below Winterfell. Yes, except <laughs> like, in this movie, there's a band called Cow Snatcher that keeps playing. Oh, well, I feel like that would liven it up on our show. Speaking of movies, we want to do one more in and out before we get out of here. Real quick, I know you saw a wonderful film. It's a thing. I saw uh, two movies yesterday. I've given in to Andy's plane movies for as much as this bothers me. Uh, Andy, what did you see on the plane coming out? And were you in and out of those movies? Uh, I saw a movie called uh, Mad Max Furry Road. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. <laughs> That's that's what the Virgin America version is. Yeah. Um, it was it was weirdly sanitized. It was about it was about um, baseball mascots running through the desert. Um, look, I I know you called me out on this one because this movie uh, did pretty good business. Yeah, we're coming up on its year anniversary. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. It was nominated for a lot of Oscars. I did a little uh, deep Wikipediaing. Did you? This movie was uh, filmed in twenty twelve. Yep. Talked about that last year. So this movie is. Older than us doing podcasts, or at least as old. It seriously is. It is. But I think there probably is like a Hollywood perspective where we're like, are here that they're rebooting no, no, we Mad did Max. A, we did a we did a thirty minute run just off the names on IMDb. Oh, I do yeah, remember right. that. That's right. That was my last commentary on the film. <laughs> where I was like, this good movie has a character named well, Doof. One more take, and you get good. like a Tash and Coffee Table book. <laughs> seriously, <laughs> I, I just on wanted Fury to say, Road. hey everyone, good job on this one. You yeah. were right. Boy, that movie was great. And I know I saw it the way George Miller and God intended it, which was on an eight-inch screen on a Delta flight. So I really felt like I was there. You really and feel it. I was yeah. like in Namibia. Yeah. Um, That's what they're talking about with VR. They, really, <laughs> they want you to feel that. I felt hooked up to a blood bank. Like, I felt yeah. like a war boy on this film, on this flight. Um, no, you know what my takeaway was? I was like, I just feel thrilled that the human species can still produce things like this. It, made, it was so exciting. What did you think of Sisters? Um... How'd you know that was the other movie? Because you told me. Yeah, I almost tweeted it. I told Chris, like, what was your other movie? And I was like, Sisters. And Chris's text back was, nah, dog. <laughs> just, just hard out. I enjoyed it, too. I mean, now you're not you're not letting me, like, live in the moment here or the reactions. But I, I, I like it. It was better than I thought it was going to be. Was it, was it a R-rated movie? A hard R. Oh, yeah. Does yeah. anybody get stabbed with a box cutter in that movie? Um, Ike Barinholtz gets a ballet music box up his rectum. Oh. And then it and then it keeps turning. Is that is that like Green Room? <laughs> that is a lot like Green is Room. It? Yeah. Is it, is it played for laughs in the yeah. same way? Yeah. No, I, I thought that movie. I, in the same, like I feel like the thing about those two movies, like Mad Max, is the A plus version of 
an action movie. I Every can't believe you try right. to draw through lines through these movies that just you are only connected because you watched. Them. What's the other through line? Like <laughs> that I was eating Cheez-Its during both of them. Like I need to. This is this is this is my 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 clay. I need to mold it into something. But sister, like there's a version of Sisters where it would actually be like a very smart, interesting movie. Yeah. This was the the hard R broad comedy version of it, and it actually was smarter than I thought it was going to be. Um, it had it, it wasn't disdainful of its characters in a way. It was sort of kind of supportive of the fact that these adults wanted to have a good time, which I could relate to good. as an adult. But uh, yeah, there weren't enough furries. Well, in you it love there. Tina Fey. That's what we learned. Well, it, actually, Polar was Polar was great in it. All right, Samantha uh, B. Boy, you. Have you ever been less interested in a no, segment I of just, the show? No, I think it just hit me that we've been speaking since 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> okay, you know what? Let's do this. Katie, Chris, do you want to get in here? <laughs> let's take a quick break from our spot. We'll hear a word from our sponsors, the words of our sponsors, uh, which are read by me. And then we'll come back and talk to Mallory and Jason about Game of Thrones. Guys, guess what? Mother's Day is May 8th. I know it sneaks up on you every single year, but look, you've still got enough time to order mom the best flowers of her life. From books.com. Books flowers are, in a word, gorgeous. Guess what? These joints are grown on the side of a volcano. They're eco-friendly farms on the side of the volcano. I didn't know that even existed, but it does. The blooms are larger, the colors are more vibrant, it's better soil and more sun at a lofty 10,000 feet. Order from books.com today, because if you wait until the last second, you get second-rate flowers. Your mom knows second-rate flowers. They're crappy ones that come from the massive online outlet or the limp ones snuggled next to the green onions at the grocery store. Get it out of here! Gorgeous flowers from the books really do say, thanks, mom, for all that you do. So what's all this gorgeousness cost? Not much. Books prices start at a mere 40 bucks. No upcharges, no extra fees. Even delivery is absolutely free when you register with the books. Listeners of our show save 20% off the bouquet of their choice. Just go to books.com and enter promo code BSPN. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code BSPN. Books.com, promo code BSPN. Get some flowers. We're back, and we got Mallory and Jason with us to talk about After the Thrones and Game of Thrones. Woo! Can I just say, you guys, yeah. I'm so happy that you guys are a part of this with us, right. and and I not only because you are our dear friends, and it's so fun recording strange television shows and podcasts with you, but also because you save our asses. <laughs> like, the time today we got a major plot point wrong, and... After... When I was like, it was Silvio Farrell who... who but that's because you were just picturing Stephen Van Zandt. <laughs> and like, right. you just love HBO premium shows so much. Um... All men must serve. You know, we're here to help. <laughs> Thank you. It's really essential. Guys, we wanted to talk a little bit about just like, let's just let our hair down. Don't put it in front of your face. Just let your hair down. I want to talk a little bit granu- like granular about some of these plot lines that are coming up and get a sense of if there's any context we can help people with. Because one of the things I was rewatching the end of season five that came up, and I want to start, start with the North here, um, is watching Ramsey and Roos. And they're rather aggressive moves. Getting right into it. Yeah. Yeah. What's what are they? What's their plan? Because like they route Stannis. What, they route what, him. Yeah. They really rock his world. They really really get him. What are they planning to do there? Uh, they're just uh, the thing you have to understand with the Boltons is they're an ancient ancient house and nobody really likes them. Every overlord of every area of Westeros kind of has this one house that. Um, is eagerly awaiting their downfall so they can snatch up their shit. Yeah. The Boltons were that for the Starks with um, with the slight detail added that no one else likes them because they flay people for thousands but of years. Let's take one step further back yeah. because this is the stuff that I feel like contextually, like people can watch these seasons of the show without knowing this, but it really helps and it's yeah. been a while. When Ned Stark was still an intact human being. <laughs> yes. Head and everything. So long ago. So long ago. He had a, the, the Boltons followed him? Like yes. the Bol- He had the Boltons in line? When he, when How they, and when, why? Because they were a vassal, they are a vassal um, house to the Starks. When Rob called his banners because um, Ned got stabbed through the leg by Jamie way back in season one. I remember that. Um, the Boltons were down with it. They were, they were ready to go because that's how it works. Right. Um, but... You know, thousands. If you go back thousands of years in the past, the Boltons have rose against the Starks before. Okay. Uh, they've sacked Winterfell, you know, at three or four times uh, several centuries ago. Uh, so they've been waiting for their chance, and now that they have it, what I mean, their their play right now is just to hold on to power. Now, if you had to 
tell us which person to keep an eye on in season six? Is it Ramsey or Roos? Like, who do you feel like is the real shot caller here? Shot caller, Roos, person to keep an eye on, Ramsey. Person because, taking the shots is Ramsey. Yeah, I mean, he's just sort of out there on the front line. Like, you know, it was interesting that Ramsey was the one who led the sort of sneak attack on Stannis's camp. He said, just give me 20 good men, and then he lit all the tents on fire. I right? burned the siege towers, burned those poor horses. Burned the horses. <laughs> and Ramsey is actually, like, worst case scenario of what Joffrey would have become, because he's like a sadist who's actually good at being leader, it right. seems like. Right, and now he's legitimized by Tommen, himself a bastard, of course, as right. Sansa so, so so rudely pointed out <laughs> to Ramsay at, uh, at the end of season five. But in theory, as long as Tommen holds his throne, Ramsay is a Bolton. The Boltons are the Wardens of the North, so he has legitimacy and he has power along with a truly evil heart. And he's out there on the front lines. He led the main attack on Stannis' troops in the season five finale. He was just out there shoving swords into the spines of dying men. Yes, I surrender. So what can... So they, their goal going forward is to hold the North. They are allied now with the Lannisters. Sure. Right? In terms of the Lannisters will empower them to hold the North. It doesn't but, mean much. And remember, Cersei does find out from Littlefinger that Sansa is at Winterfell with the Boltons, and Cersei basically is aware of the Bolton's betrayal. She's not aware of Littlefinger's right. role, right? Oh, right. But so she, they're, they're going to be on her shit list, along with pretty much everyone else in the Seven Kingdoms and at just, this point. And just to remind people, where where is Littlefinger at season five's end? Because he's he's left Sansa to her wonderful marriage. He's basically given them a gift. He's, he gave them some some candelabras and some some spa treatments and was out. And it's a good question. Booking through the snow somewhere? Like running through waist-high snow? And that's where we see him in the, in the trailer is yeah. in the snow. It's worth probably remembering that one of the lessons Littlefinger gives to Sansa is like essentially always keep your enemies guessing. You know, like that is his entire MO is to be so unpredictable that his enemies slash like secret friends don't know what he's up to. And that he is actually the only character for whom that extends to the viewers. Like we don't actually really know what he's up to or what he's thinking. We just know that he thinks chaos is a ladder. And what do you do to those who hurt the ones you love? So right. those are his like driving forces at this point, revenge and his own ascent. This is the interesting thing. Well, there are many interesting things about the show, but oh as, we, as, as we've, <laughs> I know, but as we've been preparing to talk this much about it, I've been sort of realizing that the sense of scale is still one that we don't appreciate or remember often in terms of television. Yeah, I was just asking because, him where the Iron Islands were, because I thought that they were like south of, I thought that they were like southeast of Winterfell. But right, they're like all the way on the west, but, right? But not even just on the map. Like any, we we could say like, well, here are the wild cards for the storylines in season six, and then we would forget that Littlefinger has essentially operated as the ultimate wild card for five going on six yeah. seasons, and he's yeah. very very easy to forget, is which is by design right now, right? He's now he's got his own moon door. Yes, he's, he's, he's Lord of the Vale, right? Yes, but he, well, uh, in the sense that he is uh, the he is like the caretaker for. Uh, young Lord Aaron. Oh, who, who he is stashed right. at the like, right. fake sword. sword until, he be, until he comes into his majority, uh, Littlefinger does essentially run And it seemed to me like when they put, without knowing anything about the books, like I don't know if they get into this, but like it seemed to me when they have that scene in five before I think they go to the like the the bar that Brienne sees them at, yeah. and Littlefinger's just like, let's, keep, let's get this kid sword, sword training. And they're like, yeah, that's like not going to work out for this dude. He doesn't have a lot of hand-eye coordination. It seems like that's just a recipe to like, how can I X this kid out? I know I'll just put him in like a really violent combat situation as soon as possible. Here's something, though, to think about going forward, right? Because the type of things we're talking about, I'm using Littlefinger as the example, but there are many, many others that we could we could grab onto. As the show deviates from the books and steers towards an endgame, because you know we can talk about this too, that, that, that Benioff and Weiss have more or less confirmed that the, season, the show will end after uh, eight seasons and that this season seven and season eight might be shorter. They yeah. might be six or seven episodes each. Um, so as the show steers towards an endgame, clearly more quickly than George R. R. Martin is steering towards his endgame, which either suggests... <laughs> Different endgames are certainly less uh, detailed endgames, right? Is that what is the pressure on Benioff and Weiss to, if, if for example, Littlefinger plays an enormous role, 
what is the how do they calibrate that? Because the whole point of Littlefinger is that he's away and then he's back. He's away and then he's back. If he suddenly swoops in at the end of season seven and it's just like, psych, I've been the mastermind all along, how do you make that feel earned? You know what I mean? Even though his involvement is not as key as uh, at this point as a, as Roose Bolton, for example. How, how do you maintain his presence as a threat well, without overplaying your hand? Is such a thing even possible? Uh I don't know, and that's why I'm glad I don't write this show. <laughs> or the books. Or the books. Um, it, I mean, it's a good question. Follow up. Is anyone writing the books currently? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good question. <laughs> okay. I will hold strong to my belief that the books will come out sometime this winter. Yeah? I don't know. No. Right. Eh, I don't but know. Let, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> Have you blown one of your deadlines, your prediction deadlines? We've blown some. Yeah, right? I thought it, I really did think it was going to come out before this season. Okay. Um, but I was wrong. And I will be wrong again. Yeah. Uh, you know, Littlefinger, the thing about Littlefinger is even though he runs the Vale, like, there's, there aren't too many houses that are really uh, jumping at the bit to, like, follow Littlefinger into war. So even though he nominally holds the Vale, if he was to push it too far, people would, they'd X him out. Um, right. So he's, he has to keep sticking and moving because that's the only way that he's able to really exercise whatever power that he has. I also think that's just why people are so invested in characters like Danny and John. Yes, you know, right. e- like even characters like Arya and Sansa, who people adore and really care about and find immensely entertaining, it's hard to envision them factoring into the endgame exactly. quite the way that it seems like John and, and Danny will, of, like, as long as they're both alive. Right. Right. So like, you know, with a tale this sprawling, it is impossible for all of the characters to a make it to the end and b have a meaningful impact on the end and that is actually what makes someone like Littlefinger so interesting it's like he's either he's either sort of got to get got or become comfortable with his resign like with his role as puppet master as opposed to right everyone does have a role to play but that role has to be just by nature has to become more defined and what you're alluding to Mallory is exactly why and we said all this at the end of last season but I think it bears saying again the reason why we are all a thousand along with the rest of the world a thousand percent convinced that Jon Snow is coming back is that it's too late like it's too late for another heroic type figure to emerge to fill that void. This is not season one where Ned Stark just, was a mystery. I just want to throw something out there. So because we're talking about characters that have flitted in and out of the story yeah. and we're talking about it being maybe too late for someone to rise, yeah, yeah. a hero to rise. Where Bran at? No. Bran's under the tree, That's homie. Point. I know, but I'm saying flitting in and out. I think it's a great point because can, like realist, realist talk, because we've been holding back on the show up till now, I didn't miss him. Like, as a fan of the show and not of the books. Well, the people filled the vacuum. Well, last year, I watched season five, and there was never a point where I was like, I wish I wish Bran or his talking tree were here. Like, I didn't, I never missed it. So I think you guys, and you could speak to this, as book readers are much more invested in Bran's storyline. But I think it's going to be interesting to see how he is integrated back into the show in season six in a way that feels commensurate to his apparent importance. Direwolves? Right. Warging. Yeah. Werewoods. The what, Three-Eyed what's a were, Raven. What's a werewood? Is this like is this like Karnak? Is this like the Johnny Carson thing <laughs> yeah. where you say the five things like, and I come up with a funny question? Feud. Yeah. <laughs> Just listing, listing all of the magical, mystical elements that Bran is directly associated with and that other characters are not. He is the direct connection okay. to the core fantasy elements of this story. Which is interesting because I wonder, and we'll see how much the core viewing audience, not the core, the casual but intense viewing audience is keyed into the core fantasy elements. Because rewatching um, some of season five, as we all did going into, um, you know, to prepare for the season, I was really, really struck by m- the moments in which ordinary characters are confronted with the extraordinary. Um, we were talking today about 509 um, and episode 509, and, and that was the episode where you know, the giant walks into Castle Black for the first time and everyone sees him and reacts to him. And also that's the episode where the dragon, where Drogon swoops in and flies around and, and, and Tyrion looks up at him with wonder on his face. And for me, like that's how I like to approach the fantasy as a viewer. I like it when it swoops in and takes our breath away. Getting into the nitty gritty of it with a POV character from inside of a magic Keebler elf tree, that's a tougher sell. And obviously they've had time to think about how they're going to do it, but I think it's a tougher sell. So Ian McShane was half right when he said that the show is basically just tits and dragons. 
it's White Walkers and Dragons. And at the end of the day, all of the human elements, all of the war. I, I've seen some tits on the show. <laughs> I just want to be clear. I, might, I didn't accidentally switch to Cinemax, right? Like, this what I was still. <laughs> That's why we need Littlefinger. We got to get the brothel action right. up and running again. But ultimately, as much as this is a, a human story and this mm-hmm. is about the good and evil inside of every man, it's really about dragons frying white walkers to win the day right like that's, that's probably where, where, where this is heading yeah. so the the mystical elements are always going to be, be a part of it the other thing about bran that i think will endear people to him again at least i hope and please stop me if this is too spoilery i don't think it is but it sure seems from the trailers and from what we've read and what we already understand about the way the three-eyed raven uh tutelage will work he is going to be a gateway into some flashbacks yeah. into yeah. some history into learning more about mm. the world and the backstory do you think and it'll if, be like in the because didn't danny have a dream where we kind of learned a little bit about some of like the am i, am I right about that wasn't she, she had a well in, she, had a, she, she was she had two she had two visions when she was like stuck in that house like stuck yeah. in the house of the undying the house of the undying didn't she have like a vision back she had then? A vision of uh, she saw Cal Drogo Winter, in the vision, and she saw Cal Drogo and her unborn child. And what, okay. But what was the vision of Winter that she had? She just walked um, through the throne room in King's Landing, and it was covered in snow. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, Winter is coming. Yeah, so she actually got a glimpse of it having arrived. Yes. Uh, interesting. So, so she got she got to see what viewers frustrated viewers have been waiting for for five or six years yes you got it and, she got to see and, more, and 20 years even if you want to go back to the book it, it's interesting when you talk about the history like again like this is the season where i'm really starting to appreciate this all the questions of scale where you know we start as a very human story and then all of the little um basically interpersonal politics of the first few seasons are slowly slowly being swamped by these existential threats so, oh, you thought this mattered? No, no. The army of dead people marching on you is what matters, and you can't pay attention to that. Or you haven't been able to pay attention to that when you need to. You can't get your mind out of your own daily problems. Similarly, history plays a, history plays a similar role in this world, right? They cannot escape legacy. They cannot escape what happened before. And those who ignore it are, what's the phrase? Uh, they're doomed uh, do, to the, do something. Doom of Valeria to hit yeah. repeat on their disc band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting idea because I didn't. The one time the show did do a flashback thus far was Cersei, Cersei. at the beginning of season five. I I don't completely like. I get that. I see why that was there. It didn't feel totally essential to me. Well, I think but it's it seems like, like that, bigger that was coming. about the power of prophecy which I think lingers hmm. over this show in a way. That's, like, the other part of the magic bit. Like, when you were saying, like, oh, you know, some people watch this show because it's basically, mm-hmm. like, this political intrigue or military or, like, sex and violence show. But there's a lot of stuff in there that's, you know, biblical, well, allegorical. Like, there will be the, the what's the, the Lord prince of Light? The Prince that was promised. The Prince that was promised, right. And that they're, that Cersei, that these people kind of understand their relationship to destiny and that even jamie when he's like leaving when he's leaving dorm with marcella and he's just like nobody can tell you who to love sometimes it just happens and yeah. like the world's a crazy place and they they have that one special moment before she dies it seems like over and over again in this show people are confronted like right up against the the point where they can break away from destiny and then something comes over and and knocks them out you know? or maybe they can and i think that's something that a lot of people like about the show when we were talking about um season five um Earlier today, Mallory, you referenced the scene when Melisandre took Gendry's blood in the leeches and then burned them on her big green egg barbecue and was just like, <laughs> you know, and, and two of the three people she named, she, so she named she named Joffrey, she named Rob Stark, and she named Balon Greyjoy. Two of those three people are now X'd out. They're now dead. But as we were saying, that's a good batting average, but it also could be completely random. And I really love the fact that, you know, they are trying to run the numbers, trying to see what happened, but you don't know whether they are having blind faith and seeing what they want to see or not. The thing is, that doubt is probably going to have to get confirmed one way or another. I mean, this is what happens to all TV shows where they can be nothing but questions, and then at the end you have to start steering towards the story you want to tell and the the truths you want to reveal as truth. Can they keep skating that line with Melisandre is incredible and powerful and charismatic, or is she a fraud? Right. Some of the the real subtlety and brilliance of the show lies in the fact that she can be both. both. It's like Jamie Jamie can be Prince Valiant and be an incestuous murderer. Right. 
What do you got? Tell, tell me more about what you guys are looking forward to this season. Ah. Uh. I am looking forward to uh, Jon Snow living again. Yeah. <laughs> After, uh, you know, this entire winter of denials, I think, you know, it's got to happen. Just one hundred. There's no doubt. You just have no doubt. I mean, they've been so adamant that uh, I have tried to square how it could be true with what I feel has Wait. to happen. But I'd, I, he's. Gotta... But let's also talk about a pretty unprecedented thing, just in terms of fandom. No one's mad. No one's you know what I mean? Oh, like, no like, yeah, the, yeah, like The Walking true. Dead just had a couple things this year where they played coy about whether a character was alive or not, and the actor was coy, and the whole thing was, and then the character was not dead, and people were pissed. They were like, you were toying well, we with were us. We were talking earlier about the, like the different delivery platforms. I think that this is still why this show needs to be on once a week. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, this show needs to be on once a week at this time of year. Every, you know, like, yeah. And, and they, people need to, but, like, because that... Because Walking Dead, part of the problem is that they have those breaks. And it goes away for months. Yeah, yeah. But but isn't it interesting, though, that people are so fine with it? And I think that actually, I know, you know, I, th- I think HBO played this well, and we talked about this at the time, when the first image released from the season was just of Jon Snow. That's perfect. Because yeah. they were like, this is a story that we want resolution to, and we're, we're mostly, I do think we're, people at this point are excited not to find out whether he's alive or dead, because he's dead, but he's going to be alive again. We all agree. We just don't know how. And a, a how story is a much better story. Can I put you on the spot, Mel? Please do. Can you present me with any kind of scenario in which he's dead? No, I can't think of a single one. I mean, you you have thought about this. Yeah, it's partially admittedly because I don't want to think of a single one. Like, I don't want to live in a world without John, (laughs) you know? But I just, I think that every scenario that I've envisioned for the end game involves John in a meaningful way. And every bit of like core theorizing and backstory and all this talk about his parentage and some of the flashbacks that we know we're going to see that I think probably relate and reveal something about his parentage. I just don't understand why we'd be investing time in that stuff if it wasn't going to matter. Yeah, let's think about just using the evidence of the show itself. Um, When we were talking about season five as it was happening, I think, Chris, neither of us loved the scene with the sand snakes and brawn and the poison. Because it just seemed, it was yeah. A but bit now strange. that I rewatched it and they play red hands, I was like, "That's amazing." You totally get that. Yeah. Now. <laughs> but no. But now that we know what happened in the season finale with the sand snakes, Jason and poison, kicked my ass in red hands today. By the like, way, I didn't know Sorry. if you were going to admit that. Yeah, it was like I, I felt like I was. He was like Neo in the Matrix. Well, was, was I'm brutal. concerned for your uh, like your ability to move your limbs. Like my cognitive ability. Yeah. I'm concerned for your ability to show your face around the office <laughs> here after what he did to you. But, but you know what I mean, though. Like that that poison thing. It, they don't have enough real estate to waste time on things. And the show has right. always been that way, even though we're conditioned to watch TV and in 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 we're conditioned to expect TV to be a little bit flabbier and have some things that don't go anywhere or maybe, you know, dead ends. Um, this show can't afford to do that. They just don't have the time or real estate and it costs too much money. So anything that happens has something to, to say about where we're going. I think the larger point in terms of like what we're looking for is just for the pieces to really start to move into the end game state. The final. How's Danny going to get back? How is John going to stop the White Walkers? Does Danny have yeah. a bunch of Dothraki riding with her when she does it? Yeah. yeah. Is is Cersei going to how how bad is she going to make things in King's Landing? Right. Um, all that kind of stuff has got to start to snap into place now, and that's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm really excited about two of the people who are physically proximate to John right now, Davos and Melisandre. Yeah. I really like the idea of two people who have been diametrically opposed throughout their entire time on the show, presumably needing to come together. But he doesn't know what happens. That's the extra element that makes it so exciting. He's like, where's the princess... And and she hits him with the Jim Halpert face, like, right. what? Oh, right. No. So like, Melisandre <laughs> fled. She left Stannis, right? Yeah. And is presumably questioning the the her own faith yeah. in everything that she's believed in for her entire life. And now, presumably, Davos, her sworn rival, is going to have to be the one to give her like a little pep talk and get her going again. And give her a new purpose, yeah. And give her a purpose. And they will be allies until he finds out what she did to Shireen because that's got to be the one thing that he can't right, forget. that's like the one piece of good in the world that he enjoyed. What, what, what is, is there a central thing that you're looking forward to this season that you want to you, you can't wait to see? 
I'm, I can't wait to see how the after show does, honestly. I've got a good feeling about it. I feel like it's really going to elevate the discourse around the show. Yeah. Really kind of help, really help sort of like set. When I, you see Nolan and Hardwick together, you're just yeah. like, to, yes. sparks. can we just no, remake it happen one night Here's right the now? thing. I feel like Game of Thrones really deserves a central place in cultural discussion, and I really think it's been lacking up to this point. So I really think an after show is what's going to elevate it to the next level. No, I, I mean, I, I'm excited because there's a feeling that surrounds the season of possibility yep because going into every season obviously this is i'm saying this as a tv show watcher and not a book reader but it's something that you know you feel the same way as there was a feeling before that we were on a roller coaster that was a very popular roller coaster and people were like you won't believe the second loop oh just wait just wait which is not a bad ride to be on it's nice to know you're heading in a fun direction and people are psyched about it but there's a sense of anarchy that is always exciting about tv um, and it, this show is finally ready to embrace, even though obviously, you know, caveat, there are some stro- stories that have yet to be told from sure. the books and some things, you know, Jason is fairly convinced that he knows exactly everything that's going to happen in season six, just from just sort of looking at the tea leaves. Okay. But there's a sense of excitement from for all of the show's fans this year. Yeah, that I think it's kind of um, it's a little bit intoxicating. It's fun. I'm excited for Theon. Word. Oh, yeah. Because I, I was thinking about how I actually enjoyed his character really early in the show. Like, I, I kind of like the hybrid protagonist-antagonist thing he had going and, you know, the never-wanted son from two families. and yeah. just But also very, like, sort of charming, rascal. I don't know. I, if, I'd love to see him get a little bit of his, albeit lighter, swagger back. <laughs> yeah, and we've... we've, we've trudge through the the mire with that dude all right so every monday you'll be able to find us on a variety of platforms after the thrones yeah we're gonna have jason mallory involved as much as humanly possible yep. uh i can't wait to be doing this with you this is gonna... exciting so far guys thank you so much for listening and checking out uh all the stuff we've done about thrones so far we really like it's always so gratifying to hear from people about how much they enjoy this stuff and even how much they don't enjoy it and we can't grounded we can't wait to see you guys on april 25th stick around because i had a really nice chat with richard linklater director of dazed and confused and slacker and the new everybody wants some if you haven't gotten a chance to see that movie yet go check it out it is the polar opposite to game of thrones but i still enjoy it today's sponsor is also casper mattresses obsessively engineered american-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price and now you can get 50 dollars towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash bspn and use promo code BSPN. Listen, you spend about a third of your life sleeping. Let's make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you. You can try it for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. At the store, maybe you'll get a minute to try their mattresses. With Casper, you'll actually get to sleep on it. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price point. I have to admit, they're absolutely right. Like, mattresses are highway robbery. So get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash BSPN and using promo code BSPN. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks again for joining us today. Um, are do you are you still like based in in Austin? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's home. Are you? Do you feel like the town has changed a lot over the years? I mean, it is like an incredible hangout town, and one of the things that obviously I feel everybody wants them has it. But even and you know, dazed in the before movies have, but you know, you you can even find this vibe in School of Rock or Scanner Darkly is like this incredible um, feeling of like characters just being allowed to hang out. And I, I was curious, this is sort of a two-part question, but I was curious whether or not you felt like that was at all a distinct quality that comes from growing up where you grew up and, and having the, the sort of formative years that you did where you did. And then if you could also talk a little bit about how you set up an environment on a set to allow characters to sort of interact in this incredibly naturalistic way. Yeah, I've always had that feeling about hanging out because I wasn't really much of a hanger outer I was always reading or writing or I was pretty industrious in my own way I'm talking about once I really committed to film in my life um, but when I was in those situations I always kind of was noting it I was like oh this is interesting this could be cinema you know people talking and I just it was an important environment for me for some for some reason or another I just loved that environment 
Um, so I think a lot of my films, you could almost call like my body of work, like hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a name of a book of mine. It'd be hanging out. The That'll be the, of, the coffee you know. table book. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but as we know, hanging out can be pretty boring. If you just videotape you and your friends hanging out, it's incredibly boring. So it, it really requires in high, um, it requires pacing. It requires structure. It requires a lot of energy and humor. And, you know, so within the, let's say the outline of hanging out, there's actually a lot going on. And I've, I've felt that from day one, you know, the slacker, it's a hanging out movie, but there's kind of more ideas and activity per capita than, than most movies have thoughts, ideas, you know, so it's always been crammed full of a lot of other stuff. So I, I kind of think of it like they can work cinematically. You just have to have it it has to be completely believable and completely, hopefully, interesting, you know, not boring Yeah. in itself. If the surface can look boring, but the content can't really be boring. And do you so have to... I don't ever want anyone to be bored. I'm, I'm trying to entertain and provoke and, you know, inspire, whatever, whatever, you know. I'm trying to uh, get people to listen and try to communicate. So I think that, but that vibe comes out of a naturalistic approach to the acting which to me can only be achieved by kind of intensive rehearsal and um, kind of I do these workshop processes where you, um, the guys on this movie, Everybody Wants Them, literally spent three weeks together just, it was a kind of a work play environment where we were just working on the script all the time, reading through it, having ideas and playing, you know, guys would play ball, we'd watch movies and hang out, but uh, we we're kind of always working and kind of always playing. It was the best atmosphere because that's really what the the movie wants to be. But they need to establish their own relations and bonds and quirks. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make my film real. I'm moving around lines from the different actors. I'm trying to you know, bring out a quality in someone, some some quirk of their personality or their own comic inclinations, try to match that with these abstract words on a page that I have for all these years. You know, it's like, well, what's going to make a good movie? Yeah. You know? What do you, I mean, my favorite scene, and I, I know that lots of people have said this, but my, my favorite scene in, in Everybody Wants Them is, is the practice sequence. Um, oh, cool. And it's cool how the practice replaces the part of the movie where the big game is supposed to be you know like you're like yeah you're building up to it and 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 it's 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 awesome how you know the the scene between McReynolds and and Niles it's like you know that that's almost the big showdown um do yeah. you fondly remember because like, I remember practice when I used to play ball like just being this incredible mixture of relaxation and then bursts of competitive intensity and it was almost like more fun yeah. than the games like do you have really fond memories for practice, you know, when you were growing up? Like, that was almost like the best part, kind of, right? Yeah. I I just love being on a baseball field from age, you know, whatever, 10 to 20. There's no place in the world I'd rather be. And, yeah, practice, because the stakes are low, but if you love the game, you're, you're absolutely trying to maximize everything. If it's a batting practice, I'm trying to hit every ball out of the park. I, you know, infield, I'm going to, you know, you just work hard, base running, I just, I never remembered not wanting to be there. I never remembered being tired or, oh, it's, this is hard. It was just so happy, you know, to be there. When you're casting something like this, you know, I thought you did some really interesting things. It's like, I don't, I, I don't know if you've read Moneyball, but you were almost looking for like yeah. uh, market inefficiencies with like somebody like Tyler Hetchlin, who's people know from Team Wolf, but you put him in a different sort of, you know, reality or like, a different sort of story here. Can you talk a little bit about assembling the cast, but also like the, the sort of pressures around making a movie like this in 2000? I guess you was 14 when you shot it, but in this day yeah. and age, yeah. I just want the best player. I want the best cast that's believable as athletes. And then I'll figure out what part. You know, I think I had six of them pretty much. I was casting, feeling my way to who they're going to play. But really I was looking on Who's not the same as everybody else? How are these guys going to stand out? The worst scenario would be you'd walk out of the movie and go, you know, they all kind of seem the same. Yeah. Or I, I like that one guy, but the rest all seemed too similar. You know, because a lot of these parts, they only have like four or five lines in the script for some of the, the smaller parts. So 
I'm, to me, it's an additive process of kind of coming up with new things for them and to really define their personalities. You know, a lot of films, I feel like there's a few roles that are real people, and then there's everybody else. And they, they just feel the functionary human role, like, hey, you're going to be here and your job is just to be the roommate or the, you know, and I always thought like, well, that's not good. You know, I, I want to feel like you really, these are all very believable people inhabiting a real space. So to me, it comes out of all, the, all that time we spend. But it's very important to get the right uh, people. But, you know, let's say I think two of the most important parts cast in here. Yeah. And I chalked this up to my own experience. The two guys who are sort of for different reasons kind of on the outs. They're somewhat ostracized. Buter, the, the freshman, and then the transfer in Niles, they're kind of already been declared as the two weirdos on the team. Yeah. For, for different reasons. You know, um, Buter probably didn't go drinking with him. The first day he was on the phone to his girlfriend, so he's kind of other. And then Niles is just too jacked up competitively, too much to prove you know, tr- coming on too strong, doing everything wrong. And so casting those parts, I think the younger version of me 20 years ago or whatever, I might have said, well, I'll get a guy who's a little odd. You know, that would be maybe good because he's playing an odd guy. But the thing there, if you really get someone who doesn't fit in with the group, then you actually, in real life, you get this ostracism or people have to put them in a category. And that might work in, on one level, but I knew for the way I worked, it wouldn't work because we were all going to be living together. So I cast, in both those cases, I, I went to Justin Street, who had played college ball and a little bit of pro ball. I was like, hey, you know, I've got this one crazy part. I want you to read this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Every team has one guy like that. I said, well, I said, you're not this guy, but I want you, if you'll come in and do character work and you're not that guy, if you're actually a cool guy everybody likes, and yet you're doing this kind of character work, it'll inspire everybody and it'll keep the team dynamic. And I said the same to Will Britton as Buter. Like in another world, he probably could have played Jake. Yeah. He could have been, he's kind of a leading guy, but I was like, you know, I think there's a really fun part as the roommate who, you know, he's a little out of step and he went with that, you know, I was just happy he wanted to be in the movie, you know, and, and he just went all the way with that idea. But he's, you know, these guys have the respect major respect from their the rest of the ensemble is serious actors doing character work so it just set a tone everybody had to do that to whatever degree but you know what i'm saying so another era i might have actually got the weird guy to play the weird guy but here i was like no they're all actors let's and and that kept morale up i didn't have in other movies i've done sometimes little factions form and so-and-so doesn't like so-and-so and you know I just we didn't have that here I think they just had to be a team they had to get along and and they did it meant a, enough to all of them to to really work hard at that do those factions or does that kind of unrest like tend to be does that tend to be somehow related to the way in which the film is either financed or made or whether it's like a big studio project <laughs> or is it more just like you never know and you show up and somehow some pe- people don't like each other yeah, that's it's just human, you know, interaction. I remember on days that happened, but I was going, "Oh, that's so high school," you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> little factions. The girls were like, "Oh, we don't like her," you know. Just little bits of that were kind of constant. But in a way, I was less experienced, but I was kind of like, "Well, I didn't mind." It seemed to fit the atmosphere of that particular film, but it, I didn't really want that here. It wouldn't have worked. So I was more more careful. You become a disciplinarian in your old age. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I was like, I've, I, in a long time ago, I probably would have stuck with certain people. Where here, at this point, I don't have problem replacing actors if I don't think they're fitting in. I'll, you know, I'll do the tough work and, you know, do the unpleasant business of replacing someone who I don't think because you end up spending so much more time on one part that you've miscast. Yeah. Than everybody else put together, so you don't want to. You know, you just don't have to do that. So, you know, admit a mistake. That That's happened to me so rarely, you know, but when it happens, you have to, you know, try to try to make it, you know, just like a coach. you yeah, got to sure. make the tough call for the, for the betterment of the team, in this case, the final movie. So, But I don't think I answered your question completely about <laughs> the long road this took to to get made. It's just a difficult film to get financed in today's um, film world, you know, a, a 
period ensemble with no big stars, you know. I mean, over the years, it was like, yeah, it was, you know, can, will Matthew play the coach? <clears throat> I'm like, well, now why would Wooderson suddenly be a baseball coach? Right. That makes no sense that he would be a college baseball He wasn't a college player. You know, that, you know, it's just like, oh, it'll be a – I just kind of don't like those wink-wink cameos. Right. They just – I'm trying to create a reality that doesn't – that pulls you in, not pulls you out, you know. And so – it, that works in a lot of movies. It works fine because that's kind of it fits the tone of the movie to have people showing up. You know that you, it, it's fine. It works quite often, but not for the tone of what I was trying to do. So I was kind of orphaned for a while. It's just a film, like everyone sort of liked the script. It was funny, and I think they got it. But it was just, it's just not the kind of film studios are looking to do these days. Yeah. You know, when I first started making movies in the '90s. Like I got dazed and confused. Was a studio financed movie? They gave me six and a half million dollars and said, "Yeah, you know, it was kind of like, oh, we don't really, we can't really lose much money on that, right? You know, it's just low budget enough, and with you know DVD sales or you know whatever's going on at that time, they're like, yeah, we'll we'll be okay. They don't studios can't afford to think small like that anymore. They can only think big. Movies cost so much. It costs so much to market, and they just don't have the energy to make a lot of smaller films so it's kind of a miracle this film got made at all actually so what what's the move then do you do you mess do you, do you start thinking about tv then like just in in the, the fact that tv is it, you put have to put quotes around that now because it's hardly a tv that that we grew up with anymore it's it's everything from experimental 22 yeah. minute sitcoms to long-form storytelling i mean is there is there an interest in that yeah, I have a few projects that fit nicely into long form. I, I kind of see them as long movies, the five or ten hour movie. Yeah, I haven't wrapped my head around a multi year series yet, but I do have some um, ideas that would that would work for the longer form that I think cable or you know Netflix or whatever kind of offers as a storytelling medium. But by and large, I'm still kind of love the feature film format. Yeah, you know. Like for the last like seven years, it feels like every film I've tried to do, the the first question out of everybody's mouth is like, "Well, would this make a TV series?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, "Well, I know that's where the money is, and that makes sense." But I kind of like, I don't want to be locked in on a thing for years and years and years. I want to ma- tell this story the way I know how and move on to a whole nother story. I don't know if I, w- and I do have a few ideas out there, but I just I'm just trying to get my next film made while the while the medium's still viable you know so is that next one where'd you go bernadette or are you working on something else that's definitely in the in the pipeline it's been kind of put on hold for um cast availability so i'm trying to squeeze in another film or two before that gets going so i have some you know i have on the burners i think about nine or ten projects that i've developed or written over the years so some are fairly low budget so I, i think i can get lower budget things made um, we'll see. I'm always kind of pushing the uh, boundaries of what, you know, always feels like there's some limitation. You know, oh, the foreign value. You know, every yeah, time yeah. I have a project, it's, here are all the reasons this isn't commercial. So it's always a battle. You know, you said in a recent interview that the time when this film is set uh, was the time that, like, the last time you sort of felt aligned with what was popular. And I really like that these guys <laughs> seem to be guys who listen to the radio. I mean, even though they're still also listening to, like, uh, early yeah. early Floyd and stuff like that. They're also doing Rapper's Delight in the car. Um, I sure. was wondering, though, do you feel that way about the movies, too? Like, it's not not in the business sense, but almost aesthetically. Like, do you still enjoy going to the movies? Like, and, and, and is there stuff out there that you find particularly motivating or challenging oh, yeah. or compelling? Yeah. Every year, there's 10 to 20 films that just totally remind you like, okay, film is still great, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's at least that many more. I don't I don't pretend to even have the time or uh, I'm at a different place in my life where I don't see every movie anymore. You know, there was a while there where you kind of saw everything and then the history of cinema too, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of movies a year. I just kind of not at that phase currently, but... Um, yeah, what I feel like the mainstream culture, I, I separate the film culture from mainstream culture. You know, when I talk about, you know, being tapped into 
pop culture for me it was very much a uh you know just something about being young at that moment kind of feeling like what was the most popular was also kind of the best even though my taste was starting to already creep to the underground and sure. the, the weird and different but it was yeah but that's just that that stage of life maybe yeah but that's cool that's reflected uh, but, in the movie as well i mean like you can feel yeah those guys starting and you're kind of open aware. for all comers yeah yeah you're not that judgmental you're not like oh that's like you're kind of like ah, i got my favorites but if if that's where the drink specials are and that's where the girls are well, well i'll put on that shirt and go dance or what you know it's a bit of a you know it's kind of the flow of an evening and trying to fit in that's kind of one of the metaphors of the movie you know identity and self you know but, sure um you know, that's that's what that felt like at the time, you know. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Everybody wants some is in theaters now. We can't wait to see what you do next. But uh, thanks very much for your time. All right. Yeah, well, great talking to you. Yeah, take so. care, man. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks to our sponsor, Books.com. This Mother's Day, send mom the best flowers of her life from Books.com. Books flowers grow on the side of a volcano. Seriously, a volcano. Blooms are larger. The colors are more vibrant. It's 10,000 feet or something like that. It just works. Prices start at just 40 bucks. No upcharges, no extra fees. Even delivery is absolutely free when you register with the Books. Save 20% at Books.com with promo code BSPN. That's B-O-U. QS.com, promo code BSPN. Thanks again to the Books for sponsoring today's episode. <laughs>